Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Welcome to Hope Church. We're, uh, we're kicking off a brand new series called Second Chances. I'm really excited about it. Um, in, um, uh, in honor of our new series called Second Chances, I'm wearing these holy jeans. I'm giving them a second chance <laughs> at life, yes. This is actually, this is my favorite all-time pair of jeans, but I, they were semi-retired because I can't really wear these to work or church. But I pulled them out of the drawer and I said, you know what? I'm going to give these things a second chance today. Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, a couple years ago, so if, if you don't know me real well, many of you know me, know who I am, but if you don't know me real well, here's something you might not know, which is I'm kind of a classic germaphobe. I'm, you know, I wash my hands probably more than the average person, and I don't, you know, um, I kind of freak out about uh, surfaces in public areas. So COVID has been great for me. Um, <laughs> it's been a great time last year. I already owned all of the uh, hand sanitizer, which was great. I was ready to go, but um, yeah. So a couple of years ago, I was at this um, uh, Mexican restaurant, uh, one of our family favorites down in Pacific Grove. And I don't, I don't typically, I don't like to go into public restrooms, period, because of this whole germ thing. But in particular, I, if I do, I, I might do the standing up thing, but I don't do the sitting down thing. That's, a, that's an at-home kind of thing for me, right? But... Uh, we had eaten dinner, and I was just, whew, I, re- I was realizing, like, I'm an hour from home. So, you know, you, you play the odds game, right, in your head, and you're like. So I, I went, and so I don't normally do this in a public restroom, but if I have to do it, I, I, I have this technique. I don't want to get too graphic, but I call it building a nest, right? So I, t- I take out all the toilet paper, and I just cover the whole, the whole apparatus with it, right? The whole seat is just, I build a nest. That's what I do. And this one particular time, I built the nest, and then in the process of me turning around and then sitting down, somehow the nest slid off into the toilet. So I felt my bare skin hit that, that public toilet seat, and I made a sound. It's re- I, I'm not going to do it publicly because it's just too, but, but I, I, I kind of said the word no, but it was kind of, you know, it was like, no, you know. <laughs> You know that moment where you're in an enclosed space and you suddenly realize you're not alone in that space? There was two stalls in this bathroom. I said this, you know, no, you know. And out of the silence, I heard this voice say, you had the super burrito too? I was like, I, I was like, no, well, you know. There's some things in life where we just don't get a redo. I mean, you, I can't go back. I can't unsit on that toilet seat. I can't, nothing I can do about it, you know? But there are, there are some second chances afforded to us in this life, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit today. We're going we're gonna to be looking over the next few weeks at some stories from the scriptures of people who received a second chance and what that looked like and what it meant to them and what it means to us. You know, I think, I think this world is full of optimists, pessimists, and realists. I consider myself to be in the third category. But optimists tend to look at life and they say, life is full of second chances. Everywhere you go, you, there's second chances to be afforded to people. And pessimists say, 
there are no second chances. You know, you, you get one chance at things and then, and then that's it. And I think realists tend to look around and say, well, it's a little bit of both. But which is it? Which is it? Let's, let's, look, at the, let's look at a story from Scripture and see, see what God has to say about this. So we're going to be looking at this character, uh, Jonah. Uh, so this is Jonah up here on the screen here. Um, this is the character of Jonah. And he has a story in the Scripture. He has, he has a, his, his own book of the Bible dedicated to his story. It's not very long. It's just four chapters. And we're going to take a look at his story. But first I wanted to uh, tell you uh, another story. There was, um, so in 1969, the Apollo 11 uh, spacecraft uh, was orbiting the moon, and the lander detached and made its way down to the surface of the moon, ca carrying with it uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, right? And these two guys, they, they landed on the surface of the moon, and the whole world watched on live television. This is uh, July 24th, 1969, this took place. So they were watching it in black and white on their televisions. Um, Mike remembers, he was there. And um, so this, this, uh, this lander lands on the surface of the moon. Now here's, a, here's the thing, here's the thing. Is, so Nixon was president at the time. There was a, at least a possibility that these two men were not going to make it off the surface of the moon alive. And so, so President Nixon had his speechwriters write two speeches. The one that he gave on live television, celebrating this accomplishment and their safety as they headed back to Earth, and another one, which never got read publicly. But I looked it up. I looked it up, and it was so fascinating to me because it begins with this line. It starts with this one sentence that says, fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. That's a good line. Thank goodness he didn't have to read it, right? Is that true, though? Is it fate that ordains things? Is it fate or, or destiny? Or if you're a Christian, is it God that ordains everything that happens? Is that, is that how it works? Is it God that ordains everything that happens? So let's, let's look at a story about that. Let's, let's look. This is, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open to um, Jonah chapter 1. Now, Something you'll notice, by the way, Jonah is, uh, is in a group of people. He's a prophet. He's in a group of people that we refer to as the minor prophets. Now, we don't, we don't know what he was mining, gold or silver. or um, That was a little minor prophet humor for you there. Uh, this is, this is um, his, he's probably one of the most minor of the minor prophets. His book of the Bible, in this, in this Bible, look at this. It takes up just a page and a half right here. Not even two pages, his whole book. You could read this out loud in less than ten minutes. So in Jonah chapter 1, this is what happens. You guys know Jonah's story? You know what happens to him, right? You kind of have a gist of it, right? But I'm going to read it anyway, just a, just a little bit of it. So it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And God told him, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness had come up before me. So this is a common scenario for prophets. God speaks to a... Now, a prophet back then was just a person who, who would give an oracle. That's, that's a message directly from God for a group of people. And this would happen. Uh, these these city-states would, would, um, would become so evil, so uh, violent, uh, so oppressive that God would raise up a prophet and say, hey, go and tell them that their time is up. They can repent or I'll shut the whole thing down, right? So this is what's happening. This is what uh, God asked of Jonah. But verse 3, it says, but Jonah ran away. 
he ran away from the Lord and he headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, he found a boat, and he fled. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten up the ship. Jonah had gone down below, and he was sleeping. Uh, and the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Let's, you know, this is a group effort. Let's all call on our gods. Let's see, you know, it's like rolling dice. Let's see who, who can get through. Um, he said, maybe your God will take us and we will not perish. So the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. So this would be kind of like, uh, you know, a bunch of straws and whoever draws the short straw gets picked, right? So they, they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah because they wanted to find out who's responsible, who is the one that is causing, you know, whose God is causing this storm. So they asked him, us, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you, uh, what do, you do? Where do you come from? They're, they're trying to figure it out. What's, what's your story? Uh, what, what people are you from? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship, listen to what he says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. Now, remember for the Hebrews, there's no, you know how we think of the word heaven as like this place, right? This place that maybe, you know, we go after we die, there's heaven, there's hell, right? This is not how the ancient Hebrews, when they said heaven, they meant the space above the earth, okay? So here's the God of space above the earth who made the sea and the land. So my God is, is what he's saying, is God of everything, right? The whole thing. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? <laughs> you worship the God of everything. What is it that you've done? It must be horrible. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher and they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? you have any ideas, Jonah? Uh, well, why don't you pick me up and throw me into the sea? Now, this is a pattern you'll see through the book of Jonah. Um, Jonah appears to have some kind of death wish. Um, he wants to die. Uh, in fact, he says so explicitly later. He said, if you throw me in and I die, it will become calm, and I know, I know this is my fault. This great storm has come up upon you. Indeed, the men did their best. to. So they, the men give it a shot. These are good guys, these sailors. These are, they're salty folk, but they're good. They try to not kill Jonah, okay? They try to row for land, doesn't work. Everything they try, so at last they finally come down to it and they, they go, well, this is, what, this is what we have to do. Um, and they, uh, uh, it says, uh, then they cried to the Lord, oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. So they plead to this, this Hebrew God, um, please don't, don't kill us for, for offering him as a sacrifice. So they throw him in the water. Verse 17 says, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Yep, you heard that right. Big fish swallowed Jonah. See if this sounds so. So here's this story where God has a plan, and Jonah frustrates that plan by doing the opposite. See if this sounds familiar to you. God has a perfect will for your life. Have you heard someone say that? God has a perfect will. Or, or maybe you've heard it like this. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. Have you heard someone talk like this? You know, that was just meant to be. That was meant to be. Or how about this one? Everything happens for a reason. Right? There's, all of this language speaks to this kind of deterministic view of the universe. Like everything is preordained by something or someone. It's kind of like this. I drew a little picture. I drew a little picture for you. Um, 
So up here, I call this, I call, in case you want to know, I call this the back to the future view of reality. You know, back to the future, the movie, right? Marty McFly and the doc, they go back in time. So what happens in back to the future? Marty goes back in time. They're never going back to the future, by the way. They go back in time, and then they got to go back to their present. There's no back to the future. It's just a snappier title, I think. So they go back in time, and he accidentally interrupts the meeting between his parents, which, which messes up the whole plan, right? The whole, so he's, he has a picture. You remember this from the movie? He has a picture, and his brothers are starting to fade away. He, he's starting to fade away by the end of the movie because his, the perfect ordained pla uh, path for him is, is ruined because of a mistake. A lot of people view reality. If we can just stay on this path, if I can stay in God's will, then these amazing things will happen. I'll, I'll be healthy. Maybe I'll experience wealth or happiness. Good stuff up here, right? But, but sometimes people look at their life and they, they don't see this, so they, they think, I, I must have made a mistake. I made a mistake. And so, so now I'm on this other path. And when people are down here, you hear them talk about it like, I just need to know what God's will is. I need to find my way back up to this path up here, right? It's the back to the future view of reality. In fact, if you go, I was at a Barnes Nobles a while back, and I walked in, and I was like, I wonder what they have in their, um, their spiritual, you know, like Christian books in here, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, but I saw all the books there are these, like, Christian self-help books. And I got to tell you this, just as your friend, as your friend, Chris Matley, if I, let me tell you this, if, if someone is trying to pitch you on five steps to achieving your best life now, you are listening to a salesman. They're trying to sell you a book. There is no five steps to, this is not the way the Bible explains reality, this, this perfect path and this other one that we end up on by mistake. If you spend all of your time fantasizing about a better life, than the life that God gave you, then the one he gave you is going to pass you by. I see some of you write that down. You should. That's pretty good. That's, that's some good stuff. If you spend time fantasizing about a better life than the life that God gave you, then the one he gave you is going to pass you by. Better quote. This is from uh, one of my favorite movies. This is from The Princess Bride. Um, this is when, uh, you probably know this line, this is when um, uh, Wesley, still dressed as the man in black, says to uh, Princess Buttercup, he says, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you differently is selling something. Life is full of pain, it's true. There's no version of waiting for us if we could just take the right steps or make the right choices. Now you might be thinking, why does this matter so much to you? To matter so much. Let me tell you why. You know, a few days ago, I was taking a walk with my kids and my youngest, Ben. He said, Dad, I could tell he was being kind of, he was being kind of quiet and contemplative. I said, what's going on, Ben? He said, Dad, you know in the Bible where it says all you need is the of a mustard seed? He said, that sounds really awful. I said, well, what, what's awful about that? Well, tell me what you're thinking. He goes, well, I don't really like mustard very much, but a whole sea of it <laughs> sounds terrible. I said, oh, okay. He thought it was mustard sea, like an ocean of mustard, right? Yeah, that does sound terrible, an ocean of mustard. Sounds awful. 
Sometimes a simple but wrong idea can have huge implications for your life. You might be saying, well, doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that I have a destiny? Doesn't it say that I have a destiny? I think it says that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does, actually. It does. And that destiny is, is one word. Let me put it up here real big for you. Yep, there it is. Your destiny is death. All right, that concludes our time together. We'll see you next week for... No. So... Uh, it's true. Hebrews says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after the judgment. Our, our destiny is, is de- once you're born, you are um, you're categorically on a path towards this, right? But here's the good news, because good news. I know you were waiting for it. Here's the good news. He has a destiny. Jesus Christ has a destiny. He, he has a legitimate destiny. And as we choose him to live in us, we begin to live in him. And he of his destiny through us. And what is that destiny? It's also a single word. Let me put it up here for you. Yeah, it's life. It's life. That's his destiny, and we get to be a part of it when we choose him. We, we choose him. It's a choosing. What does that mean? That Doesn't it life? Doesn't it God have it all planned out all the way to the end of the world? Isn't there a plan in place? Well, yeah, there is. It's kind of like this. So I'm, I own a small business. I have a small business, and it has a location. It's a, you know, a place where people can come and shop. It's a, there's a showroom there. And, and as the owner, I have predetermined the store hours. It's open from 8 to 4, Monday through Friday, and 10 to 2 on Saturday. But if you were to come on a Thursday, for example, the hours are 8 to 4. If you come at 5 o'clock, we won't be there, right? Now, I've predetermined those hours. I, at 4 o'clock, I start turning the lights out and getting ready to shut the doors. But a lot can happen between 8 and 4. It doesn't mean that I'm not in control of when it's open and when it's closed, but during that time, people come in and they can make choices. And that's kind of the, the scope of the universe. We're here, and we're making choices. And there is an end. There is an end that God has predetermined. But just because he's in control doesn't mean he's controlling. You might want to write that in too. So what about God's will, though? You've heard it talked about. What, if, what about God's will? In fact, I've said this before myself. I just want God's will for life. But sometimes I think when we say that, what we, what we mean is we want to have all of our questions answered. We want everything to be figured out for us so we don't have to make decisions anymore. Because it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to make decisions. It's hard being in charge of your own life. It's hard because we make mistakes. And so we say, I want God's will. I can just get on this path and just skate my way towards health, wealth, and happiness, right? But the Bible does tell us that God has a will for us. His will is his, his preferences. In fact, we don't have to guess about what it is. Do you want me to tell you what God's will is for your life? I'll tell you. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. And I can tell you with confidence because Jesus told me. He told me by telling his friend, I wrote it down in the Bible. I read it, and you can read it yourself. It's this right here. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That's his will for your life. That's it right there. Here's the beautiful thing about this will. If you are 
doing super well in your life. You're, you are wealthy, and you're living in a big house on top of the hill, and you have, you have uh, a great marriage and uh, family and everything going for you. You can start doing his will right now. If you are living in your car in financial desperation and your relationships are a mess and no one in your family will speak to you and you have uh, you know, no job and no prospects, you can start doing his will right now. Wherever you are, you can start doing his will right now. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Let's, let's look at the first one. Deny yourself. What does that mean? What does it mean to deny yourself? means to let go of what you think might have been or should have been, what you deserve to have happened but didn't happen. Let go. Let it go. Let it go. Let me give you an example for me. When I was growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to go to space. You know, when when Buzz Aldrin, and I always want to say Buzz Lightyear, when Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, do you know that there was someone... There was someone still piloting the capsule above them. Does anyone know their, the name of this guy that was still piloting the capsule? Yes. All right, Michael Collins. No one knows that. That's amazing. Good for you. you point, yeah, you were there. You watched the whole thing live. That's right. Michael Collins. I, I just wanted to be Michael Collins, just piloting the ship, just like, way to go, guys, you know? I'll pick you up on the, on the other side, you know? I, I wanted to be an and I didn't turn out to be an astronaut, by the way. Spoiler alert. I, that didn't happen. It didn't work out. If I spend all my life in sorrow over the chasm between what my life is and what I imagined it could have or should have been, I'm not choosing to deny myself, right? When we deny ourselves, we let go of those things. When we think of our cross, what happens? What, What happens on a cross? What happens on a cross? Yeah, you die. When you pick up your cross, you acknowledge that this is a world where bones break. This is a world where hearts break. And we're going to continue to live in this world. We're not going to entertain the fantasy of a life where those things don't happen. We're going to pick up our cross. We're going to begin the process of dying so we can live in him. You know, Jesus had another promise for you. Did you, uh, you, uh, you might have heard this. He, he, he promised his friends, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're one of his friends, he, po- he promised them, in this life you will have trouble. That's what he said, in this life you will have trouble, but also peace. Peace and trouble, those are his promises. So, and for you, he has a plan. I, I don't want you to leave here and go, you know, I went to church today and the pastor said there's no plan for my life. That's, that's not it. God has a will, and you can start doing it today. But he also has plans. He has plans. He does. He's, he's not a passive observer. He has plans. But, but like, like the story of Jonah, the fish that came along, right, that swallowed him up, I think most, if not all, of God's plans are backup plans. We bring our life to him. We bring our mess. We go, God, uh, look what I did. And he goes, no problem. I have a plan for that, right? He has plans. There's no mess that you're going to bring to him that he's going to go, I don't know what to do with that, right? He's going to say this every time, no problem, I have a plan for that. 
Yeah, thank you, Lord. And finally, you've got to follow him. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow him. I don't really know how else to tell you this. It's, um, I don't know how else to tell you this. I, I have been changed by Jesus. I, I was one way, and now I'm another. And it's because of him. I must follow him. A better way to tell you that. If you know, you know. I have to follow him. He's changed me. Not because of anything I've done and not because of my worth, but because of who he is. I was reading Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis to the kids recently, and I ran across this quote. says it better than I could say it. This is, this is the character of Lucy, and she's talking about Aslan, who's the, the stand-in for Jesus in the story. Um, I have a slide here for you. It says, this is what Lucy says, talking to her, her brothers and her sister about about Aslan. She she says, I do hope, I do hope, said Lucy in a tremulous voice, that that you will all come with me because I'll have to go with him whether anyone else does or not. So in chapter 2 of Jonah, right, he's in the belly of a whale and he prays some poetic prayers You'll, you'll notice if you read it, and you can read it on your own time, that he never actually repents. He doesn't repent. He says things like, I have been banished from your sight, and I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Gross. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Well, that's good. He's in touch with reality, but he's, he's not really repentant. He's still, he's still, um, he's still running. And, and what happens is, the, it says, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. So here's what happens next. He gets a second chance. He gets a second chance. The Bible is full of second chances, and I'd wager to bet that your life is too. I think I'm on my 50th second chance, if I'm counting right. Here's what happens with Jonah. He goes to Nineveh, and he gives the shortest and worst prophecy in the Bible. Um, I'll read it to you in a minute. It's the worst. He's the worst. He's the worst prophet in the Bible. Um, but here's what happens. Regardless of his stinking, failing attempt, everyone from the king on down to the cows, that's not a joke, even the cows, repent after hearing this terrible prophecy. The whole city turns to God, and they all become followers of this Hebrew God. And then God is merciful and embraces this, this entire city, hundreds of thousands of people. And Jonah is pissed. He leaves the city and he tells God, I knew you would do this. This is what happens in chapter 4. He, he sits on a little, he, he, he goes outside the city. It says he sits on a rock and he looks over the city and he prays and he says, God, I knew you would do this. I knew you would be merciful. I'm so angry. I'm so angry. And God asks this simple question. He asks this. He says, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Do you know who the Ninevites were, by the way? The Ninevites were Assyrians. They're, um, they're, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. In 600 BC, it was the largest city in the known world. 
It's now known as Mosul, Iraq. That's where it is. It's in northern Iraq. And along with the Babylonians, the Assyrians came from a long line of people who enslaved and murdered and defeated Jonah's people again and again and again. And Jonah was angry. He wanted this city to burn and the people in it. He didn't want to go because he didn't want to give this prophecy because he knew there was a chance that they would turn and repent and God would show his mercy and he didn't want that, so he was angry. It's hard for us, I think, as modern people to really understand the depth of pain of an oppressed people like the Hebrews in Jonah's day, but let's try for a minute. Let's try. Imagine, imagine your people came from Western Africa and 400 years ago. You're living along the tribal coast of Western Africa on the, uh, the, the Atlantic coast and ships come and slavers gather your people up. They kill the weak, enslave and chain the strong and they take them across the ocean. Many of them perish. But the ones that survive arrive to a new kind of hell. Slavery. For 250 years, your people are born, live, and die in abject slavery, abuse, and murder on this continent. And then the Civil War happens, but racism doesn't go away in 1865. There's Jim Crow and segregation, and more abuse and more murder. And then in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1929, a man named Martin Luther King Jr. is born, surrounded by this kind of hate that his people have experienced their entire life. And one day God tells him, I'm going to give you a dream, and I want you to take it to Washington, D.C., and give a speech in front of tens of thousands of people. And I want you to tell those people, not a message of judgment, but one of peace, that I love them, and there's grace and mercy. Can you imagine that? Let me give you another context. So try to imagine this. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of a, a, of a Native American people, and you live here on the coast of California, maybe in the mid-1800s, perhaps from the Alonahi tribe. That's the tribe that lived right down the street here in Soquel. They lived around the Soquel Creek. And for 50 years, there's a concerted effort to drive your people from their native lands. This would lead to the deaths of over 150,000 people. Four-fifths of your, your uh, native people, your pop the population was destroyed along with all of its culture. Destroyed and forgotten. These initiatives came straight from the self. Then God tells you, you're growing up in this, all of this hate and this oppression, and God tells you as a young native boy, I want you to go to those people. I want you to go to Sacramento. And I want to preach on the state capital steps, and I want you to tell them to repent because God wants to save them and rescue them because he loves them. How would you feel about that? How would you feel? It's hard for us to relate to that, isn't it? It's hard. Modern context. We are surrounded by war. I don't mean a, a shooting war. I mean we're surrounded by conflict. There's... You know, all you have to do is turn on the news or go on the social media and you see it's, you know, it's all these different groups are in conflict with one another. Republicans versus Democrats, liberals and conservatives, fundamentalism versus science, tradition 
versus progression. Socialism, capitalism, brute tribalism. It, maybe it's not clubs and spears, but it's words and ideas. All around you, my friends, there is a culture war. You want me to tell you a secret? This is not our war. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is not your war. God's question to Jonah speaks to us through the ages and asks this of you and I today. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Following Jesus means no longer having enemies. Following Jesus means no longer having enemies. This is the story of Jonah. Now you might say, wait a second, wait, wait there, Pastor Chris. I think I heard Jesus say I'm supposed to love my enemies, right? Yeah, think about that. Think about that. He did say that. Love your enemies. Think about that. That's a logical contradiction, isn't it? You can't love your enemy. You can love someone or they can be your enemy. You can't love your enemies. So by saying love your enemies, you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, hey, you, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. We're glad you're here. This is a family who has no enemies. And now, neither do you. That's what love your enemies means. Remember I told you that Jonah gave the worst prophecy ever? You want to hear it? Here it is. In Hebrew, it was only five words. In English, it's translated into eight words. It's the worst. You want to hear it? So he goes into Nineveh, this bustling city of hundreds of thousands of people. Now remember, he comes from a prophetic tradition of people like Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah who give chapter after chapter of poetic prophecy. I mean, these are like words that are that are just come down through the, through the ages. I mean, poetic works that are you know, sit alongside Shakespeare. And, other, and this, is what, this is what Jonah has to say. He goes, there he is right there. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's it. That's the whole thing. He's done. That's his prophecy. For, all that way, he got swallowed by a fish, a storm, the whole thing, and he gets there, and that's all he says. See, Jonah had decided who was worthy of God's love forgiveness. That's why he tried, he tried to throw the match. That's what he was doing. He gave the worst prophecy because he didn't want them to repent, right? Because he had decided. Have we done that? Have we decided who is worthy of God's grace and love and forgiveness by still retaining enmity with other people because they think or act or look differently than us? Here's the, the word overthrown that, that uh, Jonah uses there. That word overthrown, it's a Hebrew word. It's napaket. It means to be turned over, like if you took a plate of food and you turned it over. So he says, he says in 40 more days, Nineveh will be, will, will be turned over like this plate of food. And in one sense, that's true. For a city to be turned over meant it would be conquered by someone else, right? But it has another older and deeper and richer meaning. Napaket means for one thing to be completely transformed into its opposite. And that's what's being done to us. That's what's being done in us and through us. The reason that God calls us to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves and pick, our, pick up our crosses so that we can learn to live in him, to become the opposite of what we would have been, to become love where we would have been hate, to make friends where we would have made enemies. That's his plan for us to go out into all the world and make friends for Jesus. And part of that process means learning to see people the way that he sees people. 
It's hard. It doesn't come naturally, does it? I want to just go and be around people that talk like me and look like me and act like me and think the same things that I do. That's not his plan for us. It's not his plan. It's true that salvation leads to a changed life. It's true. My life has been changed. But just changing your life is not what saves you. It's him. It's him. He does the work. That's the story of Jonah. That's all I got. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.